Christ has ascended. Christos Upsapshaho. Please be seated if you can find a spot. Uh, I congratulate you being here for the first annual pilgrimage to Our Lady, Help of Mothers, and Our Lady of the Blue Mountains. So we're very pleased to see so many came for the pilgrimage. It's a wonderful thing. And there are a few locals here also, very good friends of the monastery. And they may their numbers increase so that we can always have a nice worshiping community in the monastery in addition to the monks. Uh, this is not a cathedral church of a bishop. This is a cathedral, which means the public gathering place of the community in a monastery. <clears throat> so we have <clears throat> the little chapel in the monastery, that's for the community, but people are allowed to come there. It's not like exclusive. And But this is the great church for our great celebrations in relationship with all our brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is going to be a very, if I have to say so myself, an ideal Byzantine church with all the bells and whistles. And it's going to be a, actually a cherished treasure in the Northwest. For some reason, Our Lady must want this here. Today's Gospel and the Feast is of the Holy Fathers of the Council of Nicaea. 325. And the number, and the numbers of the council were 318, which is idealized number because of the 318 just men of the Old Testament. So we always in the Eastern Church look to the Old Testament as a prefigurement of what's in the New Testament. And the New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament. And our liturgy is also constructed that way. So if you pay attention to liturgical life, especially Matins, you're going to learn the theology of the Eastern Church. Very important. Now, we say in the Catholic Church, the universal Catholic Church, that there are three sources of revelation, which are really one, because the primary source of revelation is Jesus Christ. But he expresses himself, first of all, by his own preaching, which was listened to by the apostolic church. And we have the writings of the apostolic church in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and in the commentary on the Gospels by the early fathers of the church, especially the apostolic fathers and the council fathers. So, we say this, we sing this in church. The preaching of the apostles, 
the writings of the fathers, and the melody of theology we sing in the temple and the church teaches us the theology and melody of theology of our church. So if you know and learn those things, you are truly formed in the Eastern Catholic Church. Even the Western Church, when it's looking for something, it has to go to the East, because they are our child. We were first. They are our child. Our Catholic faith came from the East, from Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, to Rome. Peter first founded the church in Antioch. So there are successes to Peter in Antioch. Then he came to Rome with Paul, which was the capital. In due time, the capital of the empire would be Constantinople, and the West would fall into hard times, shall we say. It's very important that we know the history of Christianity, its origins, where it came from and who taught, and that we persevere in that teaching. So that when you talk to people who have fallen away from the straight line of Christianity, you know what you're talking about. It's very important that you understand the sacred scriptures. And to understand the sacred scriptures, we don't say the Bible. The Bible means uh, boss in Greek. It just means the book. But before the book came around, all these scrolls and collections of the writings of the apostles and the gospels were put together for what? To be read in the the gathering of the liturgy. That's why it was put together. So the early fathers, apostolic fathers, they inherited a liturgy which was largely from the synagogue and the temple. And gradually they put in the Christian writings. So one of the wonderful experiences I had in my life was when I was a captain at ATC, Air Training Command, in Biloxi, Mississippi. Well, Biloxi, Mississippi, we won't go there. But anyway, pray for those people. It's so hot, I tell you. You could fry your dinner on the, in the afternoon on the car. So anyway, while I, while I was there, uh, I met a Rabbi Engelstein. And we became fast friends because the model of ministry in the military services is sort of Protestant. Well, a Catholic priest can adapt himself to that. But a Jewish rabbi, it's hard time for him to do that. Because the rabbis, if they're really observant, they spend four hours in the morning in studying and prayer. So uh, Rabbi Engelstein, he bossed his dad. He had the shiver. And uh, 
being raised in a Eastern European ghetto around uh, Jews that were uh, very observant. They were the largest Jewish synagogue in Eastern Europe was in Uzharad, the very center of the mention of Selmatodius. Uh, they were Hasidic Jews, which is really a recent reform, maybe around the 15th or 17th century. I haven't got that date right. But uh, I, we, I live with those people. And the family was like this about it. They were our neighbors in Europe, and they were our neighbors in Yonkers, New York. And so if something happened in their community, I was sent with a bowl of fruit to go to the house and put it on the table and sit there and shiver for them. Well, they shivered for 10 days. That means they mourned. So anyway, the rabbi and I became close friends. Now, some of you know these stories. So anyway, he was a wonderful man. And he thought, he said to me, you know, you're almost kosher. Well, I wasn't really kosher, but when I was around him, I was kosher. So that was the way. I'd eat tuna fish and things like that when we went out. So anyway, one evening, there wasn't a minion for the rabbinical service on Friday night. I was working in my office trying to get myself in order. I'm always trying to get my office in order. It just hasn't happened yet, but there must be hope somewhere. But anyway, I'm sitting there, and he says to me, Father Joe, he says, I don't have a minion for the service tonight. I says, okay. He says, he asked me a personal question. I was kosher in a certain place. I says, I am. He says, put your hat on and go sit in the back of the chapel. It was one of the most blessed experiences I ever had to learn about our Vesper service. So I went and sat in the back, and they sang psalms, just like we do. They turned to the east, and they greeted the Shabbos, like we greet uh, Christ with O joyful light, which the apostles themselves sang. And then afterwards, after the sermon, the men stood up to say uh, prayers for their deceased fathers. At one point, everybody else sat down. And afterwards... We went downstairs and they had to eat from the rabbi's plate, like Jesus at the Last Supper, huh? Interesting. And it was a privilege to eat the food from the plate of the rabbi. So after experiencing this service, I looked at our Vesper service. I said, I know exactly where it came from the evening service of the temple and the synagogue, the Shabbos service. When you look at liturgy, especially in the Eastern Church, you have to know our roots. And so then you don't come in and get lost. People come to our churches and they say, don't you read the Bible? I always say, I think to myself, well, hello, the whole thing is the Bible. Every, every word we sing in the church so what it tells me is they do not know the Bible. So without knowing the Bible, how can they know liturgy? 
How can they know the early roots of the Eucharist or the sacraments or anything which are contained in the Bible but in the Greek text? It's difficult, fellas. You've got to learn Greek. Difficult. Now, I say these things to you that when it comes to the Council of Nicaea, these 318 or 16 fathers were not just there because they were going to have an ecumenical council. They were there to defend what the apostles had taught them, what they had received at the hands of the apostles. They were the next generation. They were the apostolic bishops. They continued the tradition they received from the apostles. Very important. We still have bishops, but they're not apostolic bishops because they're not that first generation after the twelve, like Peter and all those, like Matthew that went down to, and Mark that went down to Egypt to a church that's now being blown away, ancient church, a very Jewish church from their tradition. When we dig, don't look at Time magazine or the newspaper to find about the roots of your faith. Listen to the singing in the church. Read the sacred scriptures with the Father's commentary. I recommend the Orthodox Bible. It's the closest to something that's really decent. Translation, well, no, but it's pretty close. Closer to the early father and closer to our liturgy. And this question always comes up uh, when we talk about continuity and orthodoxy in our church. You say, well, are we orthodox or are we not? We are the church of the first thousand years in union with the Holy See of Rome. We are more orthodox than the orthodox because they have splintered themselves up, but not terribly. Hopefully, this pope and his friendship with the patriarchs will bring about a true community of friendship and love and maybe, in due time, a sacramental unity. We share the same roots. We're not different. We share the same sources. And we say, well, what about the Western Church? Well, listen to me. The job of the Pope is to preserve apostolic unity in the churches. The Western Church, I think, has never had the opportunity to mature in the apostolic tradition. Well, they claim they have the apostolic tradition, and they do, but they have a random theology based on philosophy. And our early fathers told us, beware of the philosophers. So every once in a while, some young man comes here and he's down at Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas based, he's not a theologian, he's a philosopher theologian. He based his things on Augustine and Aristotle. So you were taught, I was too, by the nuns, 
that every sacrament is matter and form. That's hylomorphism from Aristotle. Is that divinely revealed? Aristotle? Plato? But we use a lot of that philosophy in theology. But we should identify the difference between divine revelation and what is philosophical speculation applied or systems applied to theology. The sacraments are the sacraments because they are the divine touches of Jesus Christ to the apostolic community that is still with us in the priesthood, in the bishops. That's where it comes from. Not the arguments about theology. Theology not guided by the Holy Spirit and the mystical presence of God in the theology of the church, the melody of theology, is dangerous. That's why we have all these people around. That's why we had the Reformation. They were following Augustine. Now around us, we have the anti-Baptists all around us. By the way, they're very good neighbors. They're very good neighbors. In contemplating the creed, I want to make another point. We have, from the Apostolic Church, especially the Apostolic Fathers, great devotion to the Holy Theotokos. We don't say Mother of God. Theotokos in Greek or Bohoroditsen in Slavonic means the God-bearer, the one who brought the incarnation into the world, because nobody ever gave birth to the nature of God. It's unknown, it's hidden, and he has to reveal himself to us. We can't just discover him. But he reveals himself to us, especially in mystical prayer, the writings of the fathers, the teachings of the great councils, and the middle of the theology in the church. One of the luxuries we have as monks is to ponder all these things. And if we're not too busy working and we do our spiritual reading each day, we become, I say, mystical theologians. That's the best kind. Because the theology blooms in the heart of the monk. If he goes off to these so-called Catholic schools with the Aquinas and all these things, and become corrupted. So, I'm the abbot. Nobody leaves the monastery to study. They can study in the monastery. They can get their degree in the monastery. With my little head looking over their shoulder. So the Orthodox Catholic faith is preserved. The very crown of the Orthodox Catholic faith is the incarnation the way God the Father showed his love to us by sending the Son, who is truly God and truly man, in one person. He's not schizophrenic. He's not just human. He's not just divine. He's the hypostatic union. Apostasis means one personality in Greek. One personality. He had a mother. To be that... He had to have a mother. 
a most beautiful, graced treasure. She was born of a long line of holy people who were blessed by God, Joachim and Anna. And remember, in the Eastern Church, the Holy Family is Joachim and Anna and the Virgin. Truly, people who begot a child, the child of the promise. This child would be visited by an archangel. We're going to have seven up there in the crowning of the, of the, over there, right there. He said, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. He said, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and what you will conceive is going to be Son of God. Now that poor girl, little thing, see these little girls here, 12, 11, 12, 13, 14? Can you imagine you coming home? She says to mom, Mom, I just conceived by God the Holy Spirit came upon me. And the mother says, wake up. She gives her a smack. Wake up. What are you trying to tell what were you back to? So, the, the, but the family she came from, they were looking for the Messiah. And in amazement and wonder, they looked upon this child, who had been prepared by being raised in the temple with the virgins. Their parents were ancient of days. And so when they, she got to be about three years old, two or three, they took her to the temple and presented her to a virgin in the temple. It says that she ate strange food there, that the angels fed her. Not only in physical food, but in knowledge and wisdom infused by God. Then the time came, the blessed child, she had to have a protector when she came into her womanly ways, she had to leave the temple. As you know, women are not allowed in the sanctuary. I used to let them clean to keep their hat on. and But they're not allowed in the front of the altar and things like that. Not because they're naughty or anything like that. It's because they once a, once a month they have something that's not living. It comes out of them. I'm being very frank with you. That was considered not kosher. And in our faith, women, men are supposed to leave them alone at that time. It's a good idea, gentlemen. Please leave them alone. So she got to be that stage, which was necessary if she was con conceived the divine child. And so Joseph was chosen. Contrary to some popular opinion, he was not a young man. And then when he found out that she had conceived, he wasn't sure what to do. The same angel came to him. Joseph, be not afraid. This child is, by the way, in the power of God. He picked up the beautiful drawer 
of being daddy to the, the, the promised child. He took care of the virgin. He had very grace moments in his life. First of all, his betrothal. Second of all, the visit of the angel. Third, presenting the Christ child in the temple for the circumcision. Offering the offering to buy back the child from God. Because every male child that opens the womb belongs to God. A gift had to be made. His presence at the birth of the Savior in the cave in Bethlehem. Finally, the beauty of his own death with one side, the Virgin Mary, and the other, Jesus Christ. Hopefully, all those icons will be on that wall of Joseph. They're for you there, gentlemen, to know how to be a real man, faith-filled, in love with God, in doing your duty to the family. For the monk, his family is you. For the monk, he is consecrated virgin to the temple. Some of you were here when Andrew made his solemn vows. He came in like a bridegroom, dressed in white, and laid down on the floor giving his all. Bridegrooms are supposed to be dressed in white, like the bride. Joseph was magnificent, and I can tell you all the things he's done for me in my life, but we don't have time. Back to the main theme. If you had something very precious, jewels, whatever, more precious than a jewel, your faith, whose hands would you put it into? A father's. A father in the family like Joseph has the obligation to bear witness to his faith and love of his wife, of the children, but above all, of God. Being lived in an Eastern European community as I was coming up, I watched the men. I didn't watch the women. They're always good to you, especially little boys. But I watched the men. My grandfather, my uncles, my dad. How did they treat me? I was a little boy, and we were going from Detroit, Michigan to New York for a holiday. We always went home to my grandparents for the great holidays to be near one of our Byzantine churches. And sometimes we were places where there wasn't a Byzantine church. There's not enough churches. We need more. And so we went to a Lithuanian church. And I liked it because inside that church were a tremendous statuary of saints. So my dad, he's traveling, he gets off the train to go to liturgy, to go to Mass. He says, 
Joe, we have to get off and catch a later train because we can't miss the liturgy. So, okay, Dad. So, we, we, there were more, trains were more frequent in those days. And we got off the train. He took us to this church, which is not our church. It was very different, but beautiful. And he walked in the door. And he, and in the doorway, in the alcove, was the Pietà, Mary holding Christ from the cross. My dad didn't say anything. He went up there and kissed the feet of Jesus. I think it stabbed my heart. A good man, by being a good man, and being a sign of faith in his family, is teaching the gospel. He's like Joseph and my dad. That wasn't always that easy teaching me. But that was like profound for me. A little simple thing like that was profound for me. You men, you can be profound in your maleness. Teach your faith. We need you. Now, getting back to St. Joseph, God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, the message of an angel said to Joseph, take care of my greatest treasure, the mother of my son. Fantastic. Fantastic. He didn't live a long time, but he taught Jesus to be a carpenter. He taught Jesus as much as he could by practicing his Jewish faith. And Jesus is the Messiah, truly God and truly man, the ones who's longed for from all the ages of Judaism. He is our Savior. We are the new Jewish community. But we have a queen. How wonderful. And we're in need or doubt or problems. We go to the Theotokos because of all the tabernacles and churches that were born into this world or built. Mary was the greatest. Jesus has not the features of his father, but the hair, the eyes, the feet, all of him from his mother. She gave birth to the Messiah. Arius forgot that. Arius was a wacko. People who want to discuss you the meaning of the Incarnation, take them to the icon of the Mother of God. Explain why and what she did and why she is great. Recently, I'm always listening to Father Andrew and my monks, and I ask them what they're reading. And they read extensively. Gradually, we teach them to read extensively the Father's and to write down their thoughts, it's important to keep a journal. 
And he told me of one of the fathers, I think it was Athanasius, I'm not sure, that had a vision of heaven and the Holy Theotokos. That's pretty early on, isn't it? And he saw her leading people in procession to the throne of the Trinity. And first came the monastic virgins, the monks and nuns, who are like her. She is the first monastic nun. She's the hergumena of our monastery. Next became her married people who kept their marriage bed holy and lived a sacred life. They were right behind the consecrated virgins. Isn't that remarkable? Now this pilgrimage to Mary, help of mothers, I told somebody the story the other night, <clears throat> is about that icon, which was all over the world, by the way, and so Bishop Kurt, when he was Father Kurt, he went to Russia. And there was a church in Moscow. And these women are, are just lined up all the way along the curb, around the corner, and they're going into this church. So Father Kurt said, what's the attraction in that church? A lot of churches in Moscow, especially today, being reopened. He says, well, there's the icon in there, Mary Help of Mothers. I said, it's interesting. What, what do they go there for? To pray. Well, what are they praying for? First of all, they have difficulty in conceiving. They have worries about miscarriage. They have committed sins against God in regard to being open to life. They go to her. She answers their prayers. So, Father Christopher down in Albuquerque got one of these icons, not as grand as that one, but he got one. <clears throat> and uh, a woman come to the church. She's very, very upset. Uh, when the priest sees a woman is very upset, he says a prayer, puts her in church, leaves her alone. It's the best place for her. She goes, she takes the icon from the wall, which is not usual, you know. She's pregnant, and the doctors told her the baby was not viable. She says, I'm not leaving this church until this baby kicks. So what's the priest going to do? You just set her there with the icon, let her make up her own mind, you know. The baby kicked. She had a beautiful baby boy, and he's amongst us as a young man today in that parish. Don't underestimate, ladies, your power with the Holy Theotokos. She understands you more than others because she was a mother of the greatest child. You gentlemen, live a pure life. You have a friend in her. In fact, I think the devotion to the Mother of God is greater among men than among women. Because most men like their mother. That's one of the greatest gifts we've ever gotten in our lives, was a mother. 
I love Cherish, my mother. She had her good and her bad days, but all the time I loved her. And I know she loved me. What a gift to know your parents really cherish and love you. So anyway, getting back to the point, go to her. Ite ad Mariam, they say in Latin. Go to Mary. Put yourself in her care. I'll tell you one more story and then we'll go on with liturgy. There was an orphanage. It's a Christmas story. And the nuns are running the orphanage and a family came there on Christmas Eve. And uh, they were hungry, cold. They'd lost their parents. The nuns took them in. They cleaned them up, put them new clothes on them, uh, washed them off, gave them something to eat, and put them to bed. And what happened was, the morning came, and they looked for, especially for the little boy. He wasn't in his bed. But the nuns had told him he may have lost his mom, but he had a heavenly mother. This little boy, maybe three, two or three, he wasn't in his bed. He went downstairs, got in the crib where Jesus was, and lay behind the mother of God. But he had fallen asleep, and the Lord, his heavenly mother, came and took him to the heavenly kingdom. Dear brothers and sisters, there's a lot of sentiment in our love of the liturgy, and our love of the saints, our fellow sufferers and prayers. But our greatest love is to the Queen of Heaven, who gave us the greatest gift the Divine Son, the doorway, the path to the heavenly kingdom, to the sacraments, to the Eucharist, is the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and she is with us still. In a few minutes, I consecrate the liturgy. That body and blood, which is glorified in heaven, is the same body and blood that was in the womb of the Virgin Mary, she is the giving us the mother of the Eucharist. She's giving us all our gifts. So today, as you make this pilgrimage, the first annual pilgrimage, tell her about your problems. Walk with her. Hold her son through the life of grace, the divine energy in your heart. So nine months, Mary contained the Holy Trinity. For one person the Trinity is, so are all three. She gave birth to the Divine Child. Say to her, as you formed Christ in your blessed womb so many years ago and gave us truly the God-man, our Savior, through your prayer, O Holy Mother of God, form him in our hearts. Name the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.